0: good morning grace so we're in the book of exodus chapter 39 verses 32 to 43 so if you're using a pew bible it's on page 79 exodus chapter 39 verses 32 to 43 thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tan ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat. The table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrance incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords, and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place, the garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. Victory in Jesus. That's something, isn't it? We've been in Exodus now for a while, taking some breaks here and there from slavery to glory. That's what victory in Jesus is, isn't it? That victory that moves us out of slavery and into the glory of our connection to him in the presence, in his presence. We've been at the foot of Mount Sinai now for Twenty-one chapters. So if you know the book of Exodus, you know it, it starts with a bang, play, slavery, plagues, Red Sea, all of that, you know, the stuff they made movies out of. But then nobody made a movie about the last two-thirds of the book, did they? Because for 20 cha- 22 chapters of Exodus, they're just at the bottom of a mountain. Moses goes up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down, golden calf. All heck has broken loose, and God declares, I'm not going to be with you. My presence will not be with you. Moses mediates for them, and God restores them. He restores them in covenant faithfulness. He literally recarves the Ten Commandments. Moses back up the mountain comes back down, and now here we are after after Israel's egregious sinning against God and God's great mercy, covenant faithfulness, God restoring them, now here we are and we are seeing in chapters 36 through 39, of which Mike just read a, a little portion of this morning, we see Israel obeying God in tremendous ways. Like this This is probably, if you've read the rest of the Bible, this is probably their high point. They're they're doing it. They do everything that God says. They build the tabernacle exactly as God tells them to. They obey. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, obedience, obedience. Some of you are cringing, don't cringe. You're gonna be all right. Trust me, you're in good hands. Now, we understand that the Israelites had to obey or else, right? We get that. They're under the law. If they don't obey, they get cursed. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, if you obey me, you get all these blessings. If you disobey me, you get all these cursings. And let me tell you, if you've never read the book of Deuteronomy, it's not pretty. The two or three pages of cursings are, are nasty. And sadly, they all happen. If you keep reading your Bible, they all happen. And we get that. We get, like, they had to obey. But what about us? What about the Christian? What about the person who's under grace? We're not under law, Brady, we're under grace. So, For some Christians, we swing the the pendulum way over here where we we think, well, I'm under grace, so it doesn't really matter if I obey. Everything's forgiven. Pastor Akin just stood up and said, all my sins are forgiven, so that means I, I can just do whatever I want, right? And then other Christians swing the pendulum over this way too far, and they say, no, we have to maintain our salvation through obedience. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. God did His part, now I do my part. And both are wrong, aren't they? Both extremes are wrong. So today we want to see why both of those extremes are wrong. We're going to look at Israel's obedience, then we're going to look at Christ's obedience, and then we're gonna look at our obedience, okay? That's where we're going this morning. We'll look at Israel, so stay in Exodus, and then we'll, we'll talk about Christ, and then we'll talk about us. And we're gonna to try to see how obedience plays out in our lives. So when we think about Israel's obedience, we wanna look at it in terms of them being compelled, commanded, Their obedience is complete, and their obedience is costly. We're going to see Israel's obedience as being compelled, it's commanded, it's complete, and it's costly. And we're going to use those same four words to talk about Jesus and to talk about ourselves as well. So what motivated Israel in this part of Exodus? What motivates, what compels their obedience? And the answer is the grace of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God. If you've been tracking with it, I, I just gave you a really short summary of a minute ago, but if you've been tracking with it, you know that their disobedience, they broke covenant immediately. They, I mean, they've been, they've been complaining and sinning since, literally since they walked out of Egypt. They've been blowing it and God has remained faithful and forgiving. His grace has uh, compelled them to obey. Literally, they can obey, they can literally build this tabernacle because of the supplies that God gave them. Build it out of gold, build it out of acacia wood, build it out of skins. Where did all that come from? it came from God when they peacefully plundered the Egyptians on their way out of town right so God has graciously given them everything they need to obey including not just stuff but his own presence the glory of his presence the glory of his grace build me a tabernacle so that i can live with you this is grace this is fixing this is a return to eden literally the language at the end of chapter 39 is the, are the same it's the same language as genesis the end of genesis 1 into genesis 2 god finished his work god saw his work that it was good and God blessed it. Genesis 1, through 2, 2. Exodus, they, Moses saw the work, Moses finished the work, Moses saw the work, Moses blessed the work. Same three verbs. What does that tell us? This is God restoring humanity to a right and proper relationship with himself. And listen, listen, that's only possible if he gives them commands and if they obey the commands. Okay, let me say it again. God is restoring a right relationship between God and man, and it's only possible If he gives them commands and they obey the commands. If they don't obey, they don't experience the presence of God in the tabernacle. It's that simple. It's that. Listen, God doesn't need the tabernacle, does he? The Israelites need the tabernacle. If the tabernacle never gets built, it's not like God's homeless, (laughs) right? He's got a house. He's got the real deal house up in heaven. And it's not like if nobody comes to tabernacle, God's lonely and wondering, like, who's going to love me? No, He's a trinity, and He's been perfectly loved and, and always will be perfectly loved forever and ever, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God needs nothing. God doesn't need you to give it. You cannot give anything to God. The tabernacle is not for God. The tabernacle is for them. They need a relationship with God. And you say, well, Brady, God was already there without the tabernacle. Yes, he was, but he was there as smoke and fire and earthquakes and storms, and they were petrified of him with the tabernacle, now they can experience God as an altar of forgiveness and and as a basin of cleansing and as festivals in the courtyard in praise to God. It's a whole different experience of God, isn't it? Annie Sullivan, the the teacher of Helen Keller, Annie Sullivan said this about Helen. She said, first I had to get Helen to obey me. Only then could she gain any knowledge, including the knowledge that I loved her. First, I had to get Helen to obey me. Only then could she gain any knowledge, including the knowledge that I love her. Do you see that's what God is doing with us? When you obey me, you're going to see that I love you. As you learn to obey me, it's because I love you that I'm asking you to obey me. And when you obey me, you're going to experience my love for you. Their obedience was compelled by God's love. It was compelled by God's grace. It was also complete obedience, wasn't it? Thirty-nine, thirty-two. they did all the work. All the work of the tabernacle was finished. They did according to all that the Lord had commanded. They had to obey completely. Why? Why was that so important? Is this a test? Is God testing them? Yeah, maybe. God does test the genuineness of our faith, doesn't He? God does do that. But let me submit there's something else to this. If they, let's say they don't make all the parts of the tabernacle, what if they only build like half of it? And they say, well, that's pretty good. Listen, if they do that, then they only have half of the truth about God, right? And they don't have a full picture of God, Every part of the tabernacle reflects something about God. It reflects the complete truth of God. Partial obedience reflects that we only believe in a partial God. Our obedience has to be complete. I have, but Brady, I have a God who forgives but doesn't need sacrifices. Brady, I have a God that's, every, that's in everything. Not, not He doesn't just dwell in the holy. He dwells in everything. God, I Brady, I have a God who welcomes everybody who's sincere. They don't really need a mediator. Okay, but then you don't have the God of the Tabernacle, and you don't have the God of the Bible. You have a golden calf. You have a calf that you've made and called Yahweh. That's what they did. They named their calf God, the Lord. But that wasn't the Lord, was it? wasn't the Lord. Their obedience is also costly. Their obedience is also costly. Why? Because obedience is always costly. All obedience is costly because love is costly, isn't it? Love is sacrifice. If obedience is love, then obedience must also be costly. Flip back in your Bible, flip back a couple pages, Thirty-eight, twenty-four. We get to see their budget. We get to see their account, their, their books. The books are opened. All the gold, thirty-eight twenty-four. all the gold that was used for the work and the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, 29 talents, 730 shekels, shekels of the sanctuary, silver, yada, 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 26, 27 talents. See it? Why is that there? Why is that in the Bible? Because it was costly. It was costly. They had to give all that. It cost them something to build this. Go back to thirty-eight verse eight. Flip back to chapter thirty-eight verse eight. Here's a verse that might just get thrown thrown out. As you're reading through the Bible in a year, you probably read you read you breezed past this a thousand miles an hour. Didn't even notice it. It says. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's fascinating, isn't it? These women are only mentioned again one other time in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. It talks about the women who minister at the tabernacle. This is costly to them. The tabernacle is costly to them. What are these women giving up? They are choosing a life of service at the tabernacle, and literally, literally, they're giving up their mirrors. You might say, well, that's no big deal. Well, it's kind of a big deal. They probably got those mirrors, those bronze mirrors out of Egypt. It might be a status symbol for them. So, they're giving that up. They're saying, God's more important to me than this thing. But I wonder, and I'm totally speculating, but I wonder, are these women also women that gave up marriage? They gave up having a family in order to minister at the tabernacle, like Anna in Luke chapter 2, who ministered in the temple. Or like when Paul says to to singles in 1 Corinthians 7, I prefer that you remain single so that You are not distracted by earthly things and you can serve the church, serve the temple, serve the Lord. Are these like the widows in 1 Timothy 5 that the church supports because they devote their lives to the ministry of prayer and serving others? Ministry is costly. Obedience is costly. Has your obedience to God cost you anything? Only you can answer that, I can't. Let's talk about Christ's obedience now, Christ's obedience. Now if your Bible ended at Exodus, like that's the end of the Bible, and they all lived happily ever after, like that's how it ends they obey for four or five chapters. They obey. They build it. They did it. They did it. They built it. They built it. They put it all together. Chapter 40 is next week. Mark will preach that. Uh, Sorry, Mark. The the glory of God swoops in. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The end. That's not how the Bible ends, though, is it? Sadly, we know you just go a couple more pages into Leviticus… I mean, you're literally a couple pages away from people dying because they worship God incorrectly. The rest of this book is Israel's history of failure. Sin after sin after sin, mistake after mistake after mistake to the point of destruction and exile and dispersion and uh, all the bad things happen to them by the end of the Old Testament, don't they? You see, Adam was... Adam was our representative in the garden. Adam represented all of humanity. And did he obey or disobey? He disobeyed. Okay. Let's try again. Abraham. Abraham, you're the new Adam. Your descendants, the Israelites, they're the new Adam. They are the son of God who has to obey Did the Israelites obey or disobey? They disobeyed. So Adam, our first representative, disobeyed. He failed. The Israelites, our second representative, disobeyed and failed. Enter Jesus. Jesus is God the Son who becomes a man in order to be our representative. And guess what? he did it. He did it. He never sinned. He kept all the law. He did everything the Father asked him to do, didn't he? Praise God. His obedience was complete. Why? Well, because he's God. That's the short answer. God can't disobey God, can he? So, God the Father says, do this, and God the Son says, It's literally impossible for me to obey you. God the Father says, hey, God the Son, you need to leave heaven. You need to go to earth. You need to die on the cross. And God the Son says, yep, I will do that. He is compelled by His nature. He is compelled by His love for the Father, for the Trinity. This is why you see 12-year-old Jesus, 12 years old, 12-year-old Jesus, as soon as he's an adult, do you remember the story, right? It's a classic. Mom and dad take him to Jerusalem for the feast, and where does Jesus go? To the temple, the new tabernacle. And he goes to the temple, and they're all traveling back home, And we we, none of us can figure out how it took them three days to realize their kid wasn't with them, but somehow that happened I left my I left Daria in the Bowie library once, but it didn't take me three days to realize that I had left her in the Bowie library I figured it out when I went to get in the car. I was like one of them's missing (laughs) The two-year-old is missing (laughs) and she's yeah, I know judge me. Go ahead I'm a terrible parent She's in, the, she's in the rack of books, just standing there right where I left her. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Okay. Three days later, back to the story. Three days later, where's Jesus? Back to Jerusalem. Where's Jesus? In the temple. And what are his words? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? In other words, didn't you know I got to obey dad? This is what I do. It's what I do. I'm 12 now. I'm a man. (laughs) I've been bar mitzvahed and I'm obeying dad. Jesus in in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world knows that I love the Father. I do what the Father commands so that the world knows that I love the Father. Wow. The law demands two things. The law demands perfect obedience to its commands, and it demands a punishment when you disobey. Perfect obedience, penalty for disobedience. Everybody with me? Okay, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about Jesus' active obedience. I'm going to take you into theology class. Active obedience, passive obedience. The active obedience of Jesus means he obeyed the law. He did everything the Old Testament law said to do. He never messed up. Passive obedience of Jesus means he took the penalty for messing up. So even though he never messed up, he took the penalty for messing up. That's the cross. So Jesus says, Father, I have come to do your will. Active obedience. The book of Hebrews says he learned obedience through suffering, passive obedience. Everybody tracking with me? Yep. Okay, both are necessary. If Jesus did not fully obey, if he's not sinless, then he can't take the penalty, can he? He has to be the spotless lamb, he has to be perfect in order to be your substitute. I can't be your substitute because I'm just as bad as you. Maybe worse. No human other than Jesus can substitute for us because we're all just equally sinful. But Jesus was actively obedient so that he could be Passively obedient. He obeyed and fulfilled the law so that he could take the pe- penalty of a lawbreaker. The one who deserved to be blessed was cursed for us. And because he was cursed for us, there is no more payment for sin necessary. Christ has entered once for all time into the holy places to offer His blood as a penalty for our sins. Was this costly to Him? Yes, it was costly to Him. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied Himself. He set aside all His rights, all His prerogatives as God, He he said He gave up His place in heaven, literally in the bosom of the Father, in the side of the Father, with all of its blessings, in order to take on flesh and become one of us. That's what Christmas is all about, Christ taking on flesh, incarnation, so that He could grow up and live that sinless life, and yet face suffering for us, as us, face death, for us and as us, so that he could be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It cost him. As we sang, as we sang, on the cross, the Father turned his face away. In, in that six hours on the cross, Jesus literally faced hell on the cross, separation from God for your sake and for mine was it costly oh yes it was but was he compelled oh yes he was by what by love by love for the joy set before him he endured the cross what's the joy what's the one thing Jesus didn't have you and me (laughs) You and me, us. He did it for us. He did it for relationship. He did it for presence. He did it so that he could be the tabernacle, the temple, the joining of heaven and earth, the joining of God and man, and in him we dwell. Our obedience. Our obedience. Christian. When you receive the gift of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are placed into Christ and Christ is placed into you. This is called the doctrine of union with Christ. 150 times in the New Testament, the phrase in Christ is spoken. It's either in Christ or in Him or in the beloved, something like that. 150 times. That means it's pretty important. Right? We need to understand this doctrine that Christ lives in us. That now we are the tabernacle of God. We are the living temple, living, walking, breathing tent of God. This building is not the dwelling place of God. If this building burned down tomorrow, would God still live within Grace Baptist Church? Okay, that was weak. (laughs) I need a good 80% committal here. You ready? If this building burned down, would God still dwell within Grace Baptist Church? Yes. Yes. That's right, because God does not dwell in something made with human hands, Stephen taught us in the book of Acts. He dwells in our hearts. He dwells in our lives, individually and corporately. Christ is in us. He takes up residence in us. And when, when you get Christ, listen, 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 when you get Christ, you get everything that is Christ's. Okay, Christ's active obedience. Do you remember what that meant? He fully obeyed all the law and all the commands and did the will of God. Guess what? When you get Christ, what do you get? You get the active obedience of Christ. Paul will say it this way. You become His righteousness. You are scored A+++. You are scored equal to Jesus. You also get the passive obedience of Christ. What do I mean? The passive obedience of Christ. He paid the penalty for disobedience. Have you paid the penalty for disobedience? It's a trick question. Be careful. Have you paid the penalty for your disobedience? No, in the physical, no. But through your union with Christ, the answer is yes. Paul says in Romans 6, don't you know that you died with Christ? You with me? What does that mean? That means everything you're supposed to do, you get credit for, and everything that you were supposed to be punished for, already punished for. And so you are justified you are justified. There's nothing left for you to do, and there's no penalty left. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, let's not swing our pendulum too far, like we said at the beginning, where we say, oh, great, <laughs> because I'm justified, I can do whatever I want. No. Here's why. Because Christ lives in you. Let me ask you this question, has Christ stopped obeying? Has Christ stopped obeying? No. Does Christ still want to obey the Father? Yes. The obedient Christ
0: lives in you.
1: God, getting excited up here. Gotta whip my nose. Okay. Listen, there's this this gonna be a paradigm shift for some of us. Jesus, this is not Christianity. Christianity is not Jesus saying to the millions and millions of Christians. Literally, there's millions of Christians on the planet today. Over the past 2,000 years, millions of Christians. Christianity is not Jesus looking at millions of Christians and saying, copy me. Look at me, copy me. That's not Christianity. He had a way better plan. Here's what he did. He ascended into heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, when Christ ascended into heaven, he became a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is now the spirit of the obedient Christ. Christ. If you are a Christian, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. yes. Okay, so now here's the better way. It's not look at Jesus, do what he does. It's Jesus is in all one million Christians, all, however many Christians there are. There's millions, hundreds of millions. All hundred million Christians, he's in all of them at the same time, actively obeying through each and every one of them. Do you see the difference If you don't that's okay this is this is hard this is deep but this is this is what i'm challenging you to meditate on because most of us have lived our lives by seeing jesus as outside of us as a standard to live up to i'm going to be like jesus today right i'm going to read the imitation of christ classic Christian little book. I'm going to read, and I'm going to be like Jesus. Jesus is over here. I look at Jesus, and I do what Jesus would do. And what we've missed is that obedience is an act of Jesus, not an act of you. It is first and foremost His own (laughs) obedience, not yours. Therefore, obedience is not so much effort as it is submission. I get out of the way and let Jesus obey. When you let this start kicking in, y'all, it'll make a difference. Because what happens is if we keep Jesus out here as someone we're looking at and trying to live up to, Jesus actually just becomes another law, doesn't he? He becomes another standard whereby we start to judge ourselves. How am I doing? Uh, How am I measuring up? And then we start to compare ourselves to other Christians. And we start to say, I'm a bad Christian because Jesus… No, just… And this is why obedience is faith, not works. Faith. I'm trusting Jesus. Okay, how am I doing with my time? Let's talk about some examples here. You get, you guys okay? Everybody okay? Yeah. Let me tell you an example. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Corinthians are sexually immoral. They are Christians and they are sexually immoral. Uh-oh, that's a problem. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul addresses it. Two things he does not do. He does not quote the Old Testament law to them. He doesn't, but, he doesn't break out Leviticus. He doesn't even break out the Ten Commandments, does He? And He doesn't say, you know, Jesus, does, Jesus really doesn't want you to act that way. He doesn't say that either. Here's what He says. You remember it. Some of you remember it. Some of you, you're like, what? 1 Corinthians six seventeen. He says this, Don't you know that you are one spirit with Christ? Union with Christ. You see it? Don't you know that you are one spirit with Christ? And then he says this. Would you join Christ to a prostitute? Uh, (laughs) no. (laughs) Like, that's the obvious answer, right? (laughs) That's the obvious answer. Would... (laughs) Would you join Christ to your sexual immorality? No. Okay. Then let Christ be Christ. Let Christ be obedient. He lives in you. He's using your body. He's using you. Let Him use you for obedience. Let Jesus be Jesus. Would Jesus go to the prostitute? Nope. Then why are you going? Because when you go, guess who you're taking with you? Jesus. Wow, what if that was the reasoning behind all the ways we fight temptation? It, it could radically change us, couldn't it? It, it, could, it could change us. You say, Brady. This whole sexual immorality thing, I don't know, man. It just the, the church's standard, the Christian standard. Listen, what have we said about obedience? Is it costly? Is it costly? Look, God's not lying about that. He's not trying to, he's not he's not he's not trying to trick you. This is costly. Celibacy is costly. When you are single and the church and Christ are asking you to be celibate, that's costly. When you have same-sex attraction and we're saying, be celibate, don't act upon it, that is costly. When you have a strong desire and you choose to place that desire under the authority of Christ is that costly? Yes. When you are married and you choose to use your body for, the, for your spouse, for the other person, and not your own pleasure, is that costly? Yes. It's all costly. But just like the tabernacle, was the tabernacle costly? Yes. But when they built it, they met God. God. When they built it, they experienced God. When we obey in costly ways, are we giving up something? Yes. But are we gaining something? We're gaining the best. We're gaining the best. We're gaining an experience, a partnership, a relationship with Jesus, whereby We know His love for us because He sustains us in that suffering. We know His grace over us because He gives us other outlets. He provides other means of satisfaction, and we express our love for Him. What about going to church? Man, all you guys ever talk about is going to church. Yeah. You know why? Because God commands it. God commands it. You know, here's here's how I could play it. Jesus wants you to go to church. No, here's what I'm going to say to you. Jesus wants to go to church. Hey, if you're at home right now, and you're not sick, you're not a shut-in, if you are by all standards healthy and able to be here and Jesus lives in you, I wanna tell you something, he'd rather be here. (laughs) He wants to go to church. He wants to be sexually pure. He wants to go to church. Why are you keeping him home? That's how union with Christ makes you obedient. Do you see it? I'm not gonna guilt trip you by saying Jesus is disappointed in you. uh, No, but he's sitting at home going like, why aren't we going? (laughs) I'm dressed. (laughs) I've been up for hours. Let's go, let's get in the car, (laughs) come on. What about forgiveness? Are we commanded to forgive? Yes, is forgiveness costly? Yes, yes. is reconciliation costly? Yes. yes, we all have to give something up. We all have to swallow our pride. We all have to be humble. But it, and, but it's in when 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 we realize that Jesus in us wants to forgive that person you can't forgive. Does the Jesus in you want to forgive them? Yes. Yeah, he does in fact, he already has. And when you do, when you obey in that way, guess what happens? You have an experience of the presence of God. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I I mean, I've, I've lived it. I've lived it. I, I can, I'm experiencing God all the time, sure, I get that, I get that, yeah, Brady, we got God all the time, yeah, we do, but listen, if I'm at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, is my experience of Christ as full and complete as it could be? No, and when I sit with them, and we listen, and we apologize, and we forgive, is there just, is there, like, you, you're in that room, and if you've ever experienced it, you're like, God is in this room, God is in this room. Christ is in this room. Have any of you ever experienced that? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. We could go on and on. Making disciples. That's a command, isn't it? Is it costly? Yeah. Some of you, some of you have never gotten off the bench. Some of you have had all kinds of excuses for not getting involved in discipleship. And you know what? You know what the Jesus inside of you is saying? Let's go! <laughs> what are we doing? I want to make a disciple, and I want to use you to do it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. That's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's nudging you, nudging you. Okay. Okay. And then you're like, oh, but what's on TV? <laughs> but my Thursday nights are busy. I don't know what I'm talking about. None of that's Jesus talking. One last one, one last one, and then I'll be done. Before you can obey in any of these ways, there is the first command you must obey, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my question for you today, have you obeyed that command? The command that says your obedience doesn't earn you anything. The one thing you have to obey in order to get Christ inside of you, in order to get Christ's own obedience transferred to your account, the one thing you have to obey is trust in me. Jesus talking, trust in me. Trust me. Receive me. Take me take my record receive it by faith have you done that this morning have you obeyed the gospel of jesus christ have you turned to him in faith and repentance and said jesus i need you i know my record of obedience is always going to fall short of god's perfect standard I know I haven't kept the law, I haven't kept the rules, I haven't done the will of God, and so I need you. I need you. I need your record, your obedience. When you say that, when you trust in Him, you are obeying Jesus, and then Jesus starts to obey through you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Teach us these things. They've been deep this morning. We've, we've covered a lot. We've said a lot of things. This is the kind of thing that we probably need to think about and meditate on. That's okay. That's okay. You have given us what we need even for that. Help us to make this paradigm shift if we need to. That it's not us chasing the obedience of Jesus, but rather it's us submitting to the obedience of Jesus in us. Jesus, obey through me. Move me out of the way, move, move my selfishness out of the way, my flesh out of the way, move sin out of the way, Jesus. Take over, take over, have your way. As we're about to sing, it's not I, but Christ in me. And Father, I, just, I lift up anybody here this morning who hasn't done that first act of obedience. Trust, trusting in you, trusting by faith, in the crucified and risen and obedient Christ. May today be the day. May today be the day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.